Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300 is about you, the listener. We want your feedback, opinions, recommendations, and questions. Email us or leave us a voice message and you might hear us mention you or play your message on the podcast. Just go to the homepage or contact page at charlottebeaterspodcast.com and look for the links to email us or leave a voice message. It's easy to do. Let's have some fun together. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. You can subscribe to Charlotte Readers Podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms. And the best part is, it's free. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, this is episode 316 of Charlotte Readers Podcast, Beyond 300. I'm here with uh, co-host Sarah Archer today, and... Uh, Coast Hannah LaRue, she's still on maternity leave, and uh, we'll be back in the new year. But uh, in Hannah's place today, we're pleased to be joined by Grace Salmon, a fellow podcaster and novelist. Grace, welcome. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for asking me to ride shotgun. Yeah, it's going to be fun. And uh, yeah, we got a great show today, a uh, great lineup. Yeah, so we're going to start with an author feature, actually, with Grace talking about her novel, The Eves, which is a multi-generational novel portraying lives well-lived and lives in transition. Um, Forward Clearing Reviews had this to say about it. Heartfelt personal discoveries are made and rich friendships are formed in Grace Salmon's warm and redemptive novel, The Eves. Here, a woman's private estrangements threaten to engulf her until she finds a healing community among other women. Yeah, we're also going to have Charlotte's two-minute tip, and this time it's going to be why you should not make New Year's writing resolutions, which is kind of fun because Sarah and I have, were inviting people to make uh, New Year's <laughs> writing <laughs> resolutions and aspirations. So we'll have fun talking about that with uh, Paul Reality today. Yeah, I'm curious to hear what they have to say about that. Um, and then we're also going to do a blog craft discussion based on Tom Stewart's blog, Three Writing Rule Observations About Why Writing Rules Cannot Be Trusted. Uh, we finished up today with a craft discussion uh, with Grace where we dive into uh, Reading and writing communities, including a discussion of their worth, how to get involved, how Grace has done it through a variety of collaborations, including podcasts. And this might spark ideas for your own collaborations, creative ventures. So we're just going to have a good time talking about that uh, uh, as we go forward. Uh, but before we do that, uh, we're going to just do a little uh, what's up with the co-host. And uh, Sarah, what's up with you? This is as of November the 22nd. So as of November the 22nd, <laughs> um, well, I know I've got some meetings with local writers scheduled through mid-November, so I'll be doing that. Um, I'm just starting now to pick up work again on a TV pilot that I've been writing. Um, I've also been getting into writing some short fiction lately and just starting to look at literary magazines to send things out to. So keeping busy with all that. How about you, Grace? As of November 22nd, what's up in your world? Oh, first of all, that sounds fabulous. I, I love that you're doing that amount of writing. I've got three books coming out in the spring, which are craft books. We'll be talking about those a little bit later. So right now I'm focusing on lining up the rest of my guests for the spring two radio shows that I'm doing. I'm finishing up a blog for J.J. Um, Barnes is... Um, Table Read, which is incredibly fun blog if you don't get a chance to do it. It's called Table Read by J.J. Barnes, and I've got a fun article coming out there in December, but has to be finished, and it's called Down the Rabbit Hole. 
Oh, that's great. Lots of good stuff. Well, I think I'm going to be getting ready for Thanksgiving around November 22nd, uh, making room for the big turkey. Uh, and uh, also, I've got a, I'm teaching a Charlotte Lit class at the end of the month about uh, both sides of the mic, uh, how to present yourself and present your book, uh, whether you're asking questions about other people's books or whether you're responding to questions about your own. And uh, I'm doing some short fiction as well, and I'm working on a a uh, nonfiction book uh, related to the podcast, uh, pulling quotes from the first uh, 400 or so episodes we did, and uh, probably going to put that out in the spring. Uh, and I'm also trying to encourage Sarah. This Sarah, should we even tell people we're even thinking about doing this thing? We're writing together. Sure, why not? It'll it'll keep us accountable. <laughs> yeah, well, I sent Sarah a couple of chapters of something I'm calling the podcast murders, and uh, we're thinking about writing uh, some back and forth chapters to see if we can actually put together. A little short novella, and then if it works, we'll talk about the experience of writing together, and we might even turn it into a little serial podcast or something. So, uh, and and the premise is that you know these couple of podcasters that work together have just received a text from some unknown person that's not in their context, telling them that you know uh, the next three authors they interview, one of them is going to murder them. So, uh, you know, it's uh, <laughs> sounds gonna fabulous. Have to do it. Do have it. To they're going to have to figure out who just in the nick of time, I think. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be we'll be playing with that. Uh, so, yeah, with all that, uh, we're going to come right back with uh, our Act One feature uh, with, uh, with Grace Salmon uh, right after this. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them. And when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and claim your free audiobook. All right. Well, we uh, our ride along today is actually our first feature. Grace is, uh, describes herself as an entrepreneur, educator, speaker, and author. She's all those things. She brings her quest for a good story and a drive to keep contributing to her radio show, The Storytellers. We're going to talk about that more. Uh, she broadcasts on the Office on the Air Global Radio Network. Uh, where those uh, episodes capture the stories of authors and others who choose to leave their mark on the world through the art of story. Uh, she's got some other things she's involved in, lots of other things she's involved in we're going to be talking about. Uh, but we're here first to talk about her book, The uh, the Eves. Sarah, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so The Eves is um, a women's fiction book. It captures the conversations we wish we had had with our parents if we had the opportunity and the lessons we would want to impart to our children if they are ready to listen. Um, it's got a pretty psychologically complex narrator, Jessica Barnett. Um, she's the protagonist. She uh, has a lot of stuff going on in her life in the beginning of the book. She's estranged from her children. Um, she's got a partially finished doctoral degree. She lives in this row house in Washington, D.C., but it's kind of in this never-ending state of, you know, partially finished renovation. So she she herself is kind of partially finished, I would say, in the beginning. Um, she has a lot going on. But then she meets this group of diverse, determined, and sometimes ditzy old women who call themselves the Eves. They live in a um, sort of compound called the Grange outside of the city. And everything in her life starts to change as she gets to know these women and learns their stories. Um, they live on a beautiful, sustainable farm atop the cliffs of the Chesapeake Bay. And the, the story has some interesting twists throughout. Um, we kind of learn more about Jessica as we get to know her and as the story unfolds and discovers some secrets from her past. Um, she discovers new secrets about her own family and about her life as we go through. And we jump from different settings around the world. Um, so yeah, it's a really fascinating novel. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of it is kind of getting at this question that the women are asking themselves about, are we ever really done? That's a mm -hmm. big theme in the book. Well, I don't know, Grace, we usually do this part, you know, after we've pre-recorded a 
interview with the author, but uh, you got to sit there and listen to us do this. So how'd we do? You certainly captured it perfectly. <laughs> I, it, it's Jessica Barnett is just so broken at the beginning of the book. You know, she's given up on everything except for her lies and her vodka. And then she's got this wonderful bossy friend who says, you are hiding from the world and that stops today. And really, exactly what Sarah said, things then begin to unfold for Jessica. Yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting how you kind of plot that out and have the different secrets about her life unfold. Um, and, and, you know, she's an interesting character. You have this very diverse, diverse along like every dimension, age, race, um, personality, just this very diverse collection of characters. Are any of them inspired by real people? How did you come up with this cast of characters? I think you know, especially because it's a debut novel. It's my fourth book, but it's a debut novel. So I think that the cliche of we all put a lot of the things we know into that first novel is very, very true. But what I was trying to do was to create the world that I would like to have as I move into the last few acts of my life. So I want a diverse world. I want to live in a beautiful setting. If I could live on the top of the Chesapeake Bay, that would just be a dream for me. So there were certainly those pieces of what did I want and how do I also find out for myself, am I done or am I not? But yes, some of the characters are very much inspired by real people. Well, it's a shame you mentioned the settings too, um, being you know atop the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, Jessica lives more in the city in Washington, D.C., but the novel also goes a lot of other places too, even to, um, she takes a trip and, and goes to Tanzania and Ethiopia. Um, what was the inspiration for the settings in the book? Are these places that you've been yourself? I raised my children right outside of Washington, D.C., but the house that Jessica lives in is actually the house that my daughter lived in during college. And we always fantasized about renovating that house. So when I decided to create Jessica, and you so beautifully said how the house isn't finished, she's not finished, things are always being rebuilt, I thought I'm going to finally rebuild the townhouse on Hobart Street in Washington, D.C. And it's a very unusual setting in that it's just three miles straight up 16th Street from the White House. And it's this cozy little neighborhood. And if you do, and there's this lovely scene in the book where you can climb out on the roof, and at a certain time of night, if the wind is blowing the right way, you can actually hear lions roar from the Washington, D.C. Zoo. So that place was very, very special to me. And it was fun to recreate that. I also had the opportunity to go to Tanzania. And I went by myself, as Jessica does. And for me, it was very transformative. It was really about going back to the cradle of civilization. And I did it years before Jessica goes. But I thought, this is how Jessica will find her footing. And she does. Yeah, I loved that part with her trip. It was so richly described um, and just a setting that we don't see that often in Western literature. So I thought that was really beautiful and really fascinating to read about. Um, and the idea of, of going back to the cradle of civilization kind of plays into one of the, the running subjects in the book, which is this concept of mitochondrial DNA and ancestral mothers and how that ties into, you know, the, the phrase the eaves. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what that means and, and how you came to incorporate that into the book? 
Well, I am a mitochondrial DNA nerd, as is Jessica. She is very much not me, but uh, MT DNA, as it is called, is mitochondrial DNA. And the research, and this is the fun part for me, I had mentioned earlier how I just wrote a blog on Down the Rabbit Hole, which is all about the research that authors do. But it's one of my favorite parts about writing. And what I did with the MT DNA is that the research bears out that if all of the DNA in all of the people on the planet gets looked at, there are only nine different types of mitochondrial DNA, and that is the DNA that is passed to us from our mothers. So Landis has his mother's DNA. You and I, Sarah, have our mother's DNA. You and I, Sarah, can pass that on to our children, but Landis cannot pass that. It just There's something in the reproductive cycle that doesn't allow the sperm to carry that little piece of the mitochondrial DNA into the generations. So researchers believe that along this line of mitochondrial DNA, we are all connected. And I love that concept, that we are more alike than different, and that we are all connected. So mm -hmm. I wanted her to have that nerdy little DNA thing. Yeah, we're also connected by vodka, apparently, because uh, <laughs> Jessica's a big fan. And uh, I even, you know, in the first chapter, we're seeing some some vodka you know, going down pretty quickly and then through the book. Uh, tell us how the vodka got in there. Is that one of your favorite drinks? Or uh... <laughs> you're gonna, Everybody's going to think I am Jessica, which I am not. But yes, <laughs> vodka tends to be my drink there, of choice. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Anybody else here have vodka as a drink of choice? I had a friend one time who used to put the bottle in the freezer and just drink it cold and, uh, you know, right in a little shot glass. No, I'm, I'm more of a bourbon drinker myself, so. Well, I'm I'm more of a coffee drinker, and I'm actually kind of <laughs> curious. Um, I always like to hear about sort of the writing process for different people and the nuts and bolts of how they actually write. Are you somebody who you drink coffee while you write? Do you drink tea? Like, what does a typical writing session look like? Vodka, for you? something. Vodka, <laughs> definitely. That's not also vodka. an option. <laughs> definitely not vodka. Not a writing option. Um, I don't think I have a beverage of choice or a snack of choice. I know that some authors have a ritual uh, that they do. Um, I do not. Uh, a perfect writing day starts with where I do the edits the night, from the night before. And then I just have that flow. I, f I fix up what I wrote the day before, and then it flows into what happens next. If I just try to start cold, I, I get stiff. This has me having a little juice going into the session. And a real perfect end of the day is when I print my pages and give them to my husband, and he reads them, and he makes a couple of edit edits that we would all notice. But what's really great is when he reads me my pages, and then I can hear the, the clumsy things I do, like all of a sudden Erica is 17 on one page when she was 15 two pages ago go, or somebody has beautiful brown eyes when I had previously described them as hazel. So I get to pick up those things, but I get the cadence of the characters. And that, again, makes me feel very connected to them. I think that the strongest reviews I get are that the book is so character-driven and so place-driven that uh, people can feel that house and what that feels like. They can imagine what the characters are. So I love, Sarah, that you liked that part of the writing. Yeah, we're going to get more into the writing life questions in just a second, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, could you do a little reading for us and maybe set it up before you do? I would love to. So 
Jessica, as we've already talked about, is a very, very broken person. And she goes to interview this group of women and they are black and they are Latinx and they are old and they are white and there's a lesbian couple in the group. So it's very diverse as we've discussed. The youngest character in the book is 15, the oldest is 94. And very begrudgingly, Jessica goes to interview these women and she is horribly wrong-footed. She just doesn't really know how to do this. She's going into this with preconceived notions. And one of the most difficult characters for her is Margaret Mary, who is a former nun. She's 94 years old. And Jessica has gotten off on the wrong foot with her. And Margaret Mary is about to put Jessica in her place. (laughs) So she says, Jessica, You imagine yourself as very young next to us, somehow giving yourself a feeling of youth and immortality. You note our gray hairs and our agedness. You are ready to write our histories because you think our lives are over and behind us. You think that we are done. Am I that far from the truth, Jessica? A look of self-satisfaction indicating that she is exactly correct in her assessment crosses her face before her eyes return to mine. Then she closes her eyes and continues. I am shocked, Jessica, when I catch my reflection in a mirror or store window. I don't recognize and I want to deny the sag of my neck, the spots and veins on my hands, the soft flabbiness of my breast and stomach, the lack of pubic hair. She sighs. I am shocked because when I close my eyes, I see a young woman, still able. I still see myself in my 30s, maybe my 40s. I see me as capable of doing all the things that represent who I was, and I like to think that I simply choose not to do them. She opens her eyes and chuckles at the look on my face. See, I have surprised you. It seems that you are easy to surprise. You have made predeterminations about us. We are not, as I fear you believe, done our lives. We have probably had all of our firsts, our first dates, first cars, first loves, careers, deaths of close loved ones, life-threatening awakenings, and so on. I am not convinced, however, that we are done, or even done all of our firsts. The rest of what time we have left would be entirely boring if that was the case, Jessica. As long as you hold these preconceived notions of us, you will never get the truth of any of us. When we are all together in the common areas, I do not see old women. I see the girls we once were. I think your approach to this, Jessica, is quite wrong-headed. Quite wrong-headed. I see I have confused you. It is just food for thought. But do not write the stories about the beginning of our lives because you have judged that we are already at the end of them. Jessica, once upon a time we were girls and we still believe we are. (laughs) That's really good. Um, Thank you. It's interesting because your theme uh, there is similar to a theme that I approach to my recent novel, Deadly Declarations, and I was wondering from your perspective what life experiences 
that you've either had personally or taking care of parents or being around people that uh, might be in the age range of the person who just took Jessica to task uh, that kind of led you into this uh, to, to write this? There are a couple of things, Landis, that led me to wanting to write this kind of tension between the characters. The first is an old John Prine song called Hello in There, Hello, which I heard. It's a great song. Isn't great that song. fabulous? <laughs> it's, uh, I heard it recorded by Bette Midler, and then my brother took me to task and said, no, you have to listen to it by Prine. But the whole concept there is don't stop and stare as if you didn't care. Say hello in there, hello. And the, it's a beautiful song song that talks about the emptiness some older people feel. And ever since I heard that, which goes back to the 70s, I try always to look someone in the eye as I pass them, young or old, but particularly old, to make eye contact and say hello. So that was always resonating in me. And then the character Elizabeth in the book, when I met her, I thought she was ancient. Um, she was 70. Um, I'm 69 now. She's now 92. But she is very much the essence of the character Elizabeth. She thinks she is done. And I was always frustrated, you know, 22 years ago when I met her that she thought she was done at the age of 70. And now, thank God, I still have her in my life at 92. And I wanted that tension again. So writing is a lot about creating a tension that then gets resolved, or maybe doesn't. But I loved that. And then I had the gift of my mom till she was in her 80s and the gift of my dad till he was 92. And there are definitely those caregiver themes, but also the rich uh, lessons that we learn if we bother to listen. Yeah, well, a couple of writing line questions. I know Sarah has one that comes directly from the afterward of your book, and uh, then I might have one or two. Yeah, well, so I was reading in the, the Q&A at the end, um, you mentioned that I believe you wrote the beginning and the ending first, and then you wrote the middle. Can you talk a little bit about what that process was like and why you approached it that way? I think it comes out of my educator background. So I was an educational consultant for decades, and we always start with the end in mind. So if you want kids uh, to master something at the end of Spanish 1, you have to figure out what that mastery is at the end of Spanish 1, and then assume that they don't know anything when they walk in the door at Spanish 1 until you do some sort of assessment. So that was, for me, very much an educational model. Start with the end in mind. So I knew, and the ending has a huge plot twist, which some readers resonate with and some readers really struggle with, but there are three big plot twists, and I knew where I wanted the book to end up, and I then said, okay, how complex does the beginning need to be? The middle was much harder. So getting those lines to connect in the middle. Um, I'm not a huge plotter. Uh, people talk all about pacing and plot and outlining and rhythms and all sorts of other craft-like terms. I kind of go with the flow uh, and figure out the plot twists as they present themselves to me. And then, of course, there's the magic of beta readers. There's one character in the book that I never anticipated showing up. His name is Jesper. And I am so delighted he did, but I resisted him. My beta readers kept saying, well, what happens to Jessica's son that she gave away in chapter one 
for adoption. And I was like, oh, that's not important. That's just so that you know that Jessica has not been a particularly together woman for a long time and had had multiple challenges presented to her throughout her development. And I resisted Jesper coming in and out through the entire beta reading process. And I'm just so delighted that he showed up. <laughs> All right, well, I've yeah, got, I think uh, your beta two, readers are right on that. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Two other uh, uh, writing life questions I have. The first yeah. one has to do with the fact that you uh, interview authors, as Sarah and I do, and uh, uh, I'm just wondering how that process of interviewing a number of authors uh, benefited uh, or affected in any way your writing of your debut novel. I didn't start, that's a great question, because I didn't start doing any of the two radio shows until after the novel came out. Mm. Very much when I was at the point of writing The Eaves, I was thinking I was done. I had wound up my educational consulting firm, my children were grown, and I really was saying, okay, what's next? I didn't think I was done in the sense of I was, you know, closing up the doors and becoming a hermit, but I didn't know that there was going to be a big next act for me. So I had this wonderful opportunity to be on a radio show uh, on Spunky Old Broad Radio. And I just loved the name of the show. Uh, Gail Carson was the woman who owned the station. She did this interview with me and she called me the next day and she said, I loved our time together. I think you should have your own radio show. And I said, oh, Gail, I can't do that. I'm done. <laughs> And she said, have you not met your characters? And I just laugh at that today because, and and unfortunately, she gave me a radio show. She was supposed to be guest number six, and she deceased two days before she was supposed to tape with me. Mm. Uh, But I started out on Spunky Old Broads. I'm now on Authors on the Air, Global Radio Network. And I just love the opportunity to interview authors because it's very humbling to do that and you get just get to meet such interesting people like you guys yeah well let me just flip it around then how has writing a novel helped you in the uh, author interviewing process oh i think it makes me more sensitive to really asking what is it the author wants to get out into the world i think i'm fascinated by their process because i understand their process it also and i i'm just so impressed that you are doing such substantive writing because i find that the two shows while i love doing them i do like you do i do so much research to make it a good show that my substantive writing is not there for a novel. I've written lots and lots of articles in the last year and a half, Mm -hmm. lots of articles, which I love. You could tell me right now, go in and write an article about a microphone, and I would give you a great article about a (laughs) microphone. But if you asked me to go in and write a chapter of my next novel, I'd find an excuse to write an article. Yeah, note to audience, it does take a little preparation to do a podcast. Uh, (laughs) You know, when somebody tells you, all you got to do is go buy a recorder and just talk into it. Well, no, nah, that's not it. Uh, all right, final writing life question. We're going to move on to Act 2 after that. But uh, we, we sometimes ask our authors this. Ask it a lot, actually. But uh, uh, And this could go back to anything in your history. But uh, if you could tell your younger writing self something of value uh, that uh, had you known it as a younger writer, uh, it might have helped you based upon the things you've learned since then, uh, what would it be? I think that's going to be where we're going to wind up at the end of our podcast today. Okay. I, went, I would say 
I never understood the power and the necessity of social media. In my three first books, they were educational books. Uh, they had their own market through conferences and conventions and keynote speeches and workshops. I, if you had asked me before the Eves launched, would I be on social media? I would say, oh, that is so silly. No, it, it's just <laughs> going to become a bestseller all by itself. So uh, I would say no matter who you are, no matter what your age is, uh, engage in social media and networking. All right, we'll be right back uh, with Act Two in just a moment. If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the costs of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out. And in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Weir's podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. Doesn't Sarah have a nice voice there, Grace, when she's uh, doing this? <laughs> she has a fabulous voice. I was listening to one of your previous podcasts, and I thought, yeah. that's an NPR voice. That's right. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Heard here first. Uh, we're, we're now to the uh, segment of the show where we make book recommendations, uh, uh, and we're going to start off, uh, Sarah, with you and then uh, kick it to Grace. So what do you got, Sarah? Yeah, sure. So um, today I want to recommend a book called How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be by Katie Milkman. This is a book that I actually haven't read myself, um, but a friend of mine read it and recommended it to me enthusiastically enough that I wanted to pass it along. Um, so it's nonfiction. It, it was named one of the best eight books for healthy living in, I believe, 2021 by the New York Times. Um, it's been blurbed and recommended by a lot of high profile people. Um, and the title pretty much tells you what it's about. It's about how to change, you know, how do you, how to you um, identify the kind of habits and patterns that you have in your life and look at what motivates you to do certain things, how you can get out of momentum or inertia in things that you want to change about yourself. Um, she talks about things like procrastination and forgetfulness and impulsivity. Um, and a lot of it is based around research that she herself did. And she also, I think, pulls from other studies that have been conducted. So it's very science-based in terms of how people behave and how the brain works and psychology. Um, but it's very good, practical, like everyday advice that I think anyone can apply for how to change your habits and improve your life. Um, so it's a it's a good book, I think, for writers who are always struggling with things like maybe procrastination and, and topics like that that we've talked about on the show. But just for life in general, I think it's uh, got some really useful information in there. That's great. Uh, Grace, what you got for us? Oh, first of all, I'm, I wrote that down, Sarah. Thank you. It sounds yeah. fabulous. You know, I would love to quadruple dip on my book recommendations. One of the real <laughs> wonderful things about doing the podcast is that you get to read so many great books. Uh, I would like to start with um, The S Secrets We Keep by Barbara Conry. She's a USA Today bestseller. This is her second book. It's a prequel. It is, in my opinion, better than her first book, but it is a beautifully dovetailed, right at the very last two sentences, it goes right into the next book. So I, it's a great story. It's a story about a young woman who gets kicked out of the house when she is just a teenager because she is pregnant out of wedlock, and it is her story of finding love uh, in families and uh, finding love 
to move through her life. And you learn a lot. Uh, Barbara Connery always has something about Beagle Rescue in there. So there's a wonderful bit of information about uh, the science that is done on experimenting with beagles, uh, mostly with cosmetics and with drugs. So if you're a dog lover, you'll enjoy that immensely. So The Secrets We Keep by Barbara Connery. She's an absolute delight uh, to listen to. And then if I get to double dip, I've got lots more I'd love to share. Yeah, well, go ahead. If you got another <clears throat> one, sure. Um, I just finished 20 by Deb Engel. Uh, Deb Engel is head of the Story Summit, and it is a fascinating book that teaches us how to look at life because when we change the way we look at things, the way the things we look at change. And it opens up with the main character having the opportunity to take 20 little tablets that will make her healthier and stronger and looking younger and feeling better for 19 days. But on the 20th day, she will die peacefully. Oh my gosh. And it's okay. a fascinating <laughs> That's an interesting book. premise. <laughs> Very fascinating. All right. Well, uh, all right, well, I've got a recommendation. It comes by, by way of Parker Books, uh, Hallie Gomez, by the way, who, who wrote a book called The List of Ten. This, uh, the reason I've mentioned that is because you've got this 20 uh, in that situation. This uh, young uh, person makes a list of 10 things they're going to do before they kill themselves. And uh, so that's an interesting approach to uh, a countdown as well. A lot of tension, a lot of uh, suspense there. But anyway, Hallie recommended the book called Blood Sugar by Shasha Rothschild. And I love this tagline. The tagline is, I was accused of four murders, but I only committed three. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and the New York uh, Times Book Review says, terrific, you might come for the mystery, but you'll stay for the sheer energy. Uh, and it says, uh, you know, another quote here, I could just kill you right now. It's something we've all thought at one time or another, but Ruby has actually acted on it three times to be exact. Though she may be a murderer, Ruby is not a sociopath. She's an animal-loving therapist with a thriving practice, and she does feel empathy and sympathy. Uh, but there's some reasons that uh, she had to uh, commit some murders in the past, and the one that she's accused of, killing her husband, is not one that she actually committed. And she's trying to figure out, well, how do I talk about what I didn't do without forgetting what I did do and let that get me in trouble too? So it's kind of an interesting uh, interesting approach uh, so, uh, yeah, and so uh, we also got uh, something from uh, our two collaborators this month, the Storage Charlotte uh, blog, Mark West. Let's hear what Mark has to offer. Hello, this is Mark West with the Storage Charlotte blog. My book recommendation today is a powerful new picture book called The Talk by Alicia D. Williams and published by Simon & Schuster. Alicia is a Charlotte children's author who has written a number of children's books that feature African-American characters, and the talk is no exception. The talk is about a young boy named Jay. The story is told in first person, and in the beginning of the book, Jay talks about some of his favorite things, which include hanging out with his friends, spending time with his grandparents, he likes hearing his grandfather's stories, but what he really likes is riding around in his dad's new car. Jay cannot wait until he is old enough to drive a car himself. As the story progresses, Jay gets a bit older. 
and his parents and grandparents realize that the time has come to have the talk with Jay. When they have the talk with Jay, they share with him advice about growing up black in America. This is a picture book that deals with racism, but it's also a celebration of family, friendship. It's a hopeful book and one that parents should share with their children. I highly recommend the talk. Yeah, thanks for that, Mark. And Mark being a children's author himself, he knows his children's books. And uh, so that sounds like a, a good one. Um, we've got uh, also Alicia uh, Pressler um, has got a recommendation from That's Novel Books, so let's hear what she has to say. Hey everyone, it's Alyssa with That's Novel Books here with another book recommendation for you. This one I think is an oldie but a goodie. I was late to jump on the train with reading this one, but it's one I've seen recommended continuously over the years. It's called Eleanor and Park by Rainbow Rowell. Uh, it is the sweetest love story, um, young adult. Uh, it's heartbreaking you know Eleanor one of the main characters has a really hard home life but she kind of finds friendship and then um, love and park and it is truly so sweet I loved every minute of it um, I listened to it on audiobook which was a really enjoyable way to uh, discover the story but I thought it was just so wonderfully done so if you haven't picked that one up yet I say go for it it's a, a great book to throw in your to be read pile so, Grace, so you can see that we uh, we try to put a lot of variety out there. I presume that uh, you've got a lot of variety in what, uh, what you feature on your shows as well. I do, and I, I'm really fascinated now that um, we have to work at that sometimes. You know, um, my experience, even though my personal life is very diverse, my author life tends to be a lot more white, if you will, than mm -hmm. my personal life where I have a diverse family background and a diverse friend background. So I love that you have some of the things that you shared with us today. Yeah, that's great. And, and sir, I don't think we have any uh, listener book recommendations. We've got to remind people, though, that they can do that as well on SpeakPipe, right? Yeah, you can go to the SpeakPipe page through, um, if you just go to our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com and go to the contact page, there's a link there and information about how to leave us a message on SpeakPipe. You can leave feedback, you can leave your 30 second elevator pitch for your own book um, if you have something that you want to promote. Um, we're also doing something right now where we're trying to collect uh, listener New Year's resolutions or aspirations or goals for your reading and writing for 2023, um, which you can also drop in through our SpeakPipe page there or you can um, there's also a contact form where you can send it as an email if you would rather do it that way so if you have anything coming up for the next year that you want to kind of use as a writing goal this is a great way to share that with our audience and we're going to be talking a little bit about the idea of writers resolutions I think with our two-minute tip this time so um, it'll be interesting to kind of use that as a counterpoint all right good good work uh, sir all right well let's uh, we're coming back with uh, act three and uh in our craft portion of the show with uh, Charlotte Litt's tip and uh, our community blog in just a moment. If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottemeterspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. 
You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play or participate in an author or marketing talk or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750 word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right, here we are in uh, Act 3, and uh, we're going to dive into some uh, craft topics here. And we we'll start out with uh, you know, Paul, Paul Reale from Charlisk to kick off something that's uh, going to give us a little uh, something to debate here, that, as Sarah foreshadowed just a minute ago. So let's hear uh, uh, Paul's tip. Hi, I'm Paul Reale from Charlotte Lit with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Today's tip is about New Year's resolutions. And so that I don't bury the lead, I'll say right up front, don't make them. But I'll also suggest what you should do instead. Writers, as much as anyone, are tempted by that annual ritual. These take predictable forms. I'm going to write every day. I'm going to finish my novel. I'm going to complete a chapbook of poems. I have two issues with New Year's resolutions. First, they put a lot of pressure on a single date. Your mind says, I have to start here and also says, when the inevitable misses happen, I can't do this. The whole reason you needed a resolution in the first place is because the thing you wanted to do is difficult. And by not being perfect, you have the perfect excuse to quit. And then, nothing has changed for you. The implied what to do instead is to set your next writing goal right now, as if it's just another part of your life, as it should be if you're serious about your writing. My second issue with resolutions is they tend to be ill-formed. That is, they are too broad or too unrealistic or too vague. Write every day? Sure, good luck. If you haven't also answered the question, when are you going to write and where and what structures of your life need to be changed in order to make this work? The implied what to do instead is to state a writing goal, then follow with clauses that begin with the word by. And if necessary, use multiple statements to fully define the life change you're making. My goal is to complete a chapbook of poems. I will do this by reserving three hours each weekend to write undisturbed. I will do this by making a trade with my partner, which allows them to have three hours on the weekend for their own activities. So here's your action step. Define one or more writing goals that are true right now and can be started right now. Don't wait for the new year. Once you have selected a goal, describe what must happen for you to achieve the goal using statements that begin with by. For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Lit, listen to Beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelit.org slash tips. All right, Paul. Well, thanks for that. Uh, you sound like a guy who uh, might have made a resolution or two and didn't keep them, you know, so we'll have to, we'll have to talk about that a little bit. Uh, and I, I have to. I have to admit that uh, I've made resolutions in the past and great aspirations. I mean, who doesn't make a resolution that they're going to start going to the gym, you know, so many times a week or they're going to cut back on chocolate, which never works for me, um, you know, so those kind of things. But uh uh, we'll start with Grace. Uh, Grace, what are your thoughts on uh, resolutions or what Sarah and I are calling aspirations as they relate to the writing life? Oh, I really liked what Paul said. It's just too easy, as I said earlier, to get distracted. Do it now. Uh, 
I say this to myself all the time. Oh, you're doing these three craft books. You can't write a novel. It's that silliness. If it's important to us, we always make time for it. So I think that making a resolution per se puts an awful lot of pressure on you. So I, I think that he's right on. What are the things we can do now? And what are the real blocks that are keeping us from doing that? I, I, from, I think that's what he's saying, you know, what, what are the things that are keeping us from doing it? And if you answer his questions the way he did, you know, well, I could accomplish that if I had three hours on the weekend, but I have to give my partner three hours on the weekend. I like what he said. Uh, let's get a little debate going here, Sarah. What do you think? Um, well, I'm not sure how effective a, of a debater I'm going to be because I agree with <laughs> what Grace is saying and what well, Paul is saying. I'll play the role of the debater then we get to Yeah, right? yeah you can play devil's advocate. Um, okay. But yeah, I think you, you both made some great points. Um, you know, like Paul said, you're not going to make a resolution for something if it's not something that is difficult in some way. So you are you could think of it as you're setting yourself up for failure because you're challenging yourself to do something that you know is going to be difficult. But I think it's important just to be flexible with that. You know, like if you take... Um, weight loss, going to the gym, like that's a very common New Year's resolution. That's an easy one to look at because it's kind of concrete. You might set a goal for yourself that you're going to lose 10 pounds in a month. And then if the end of the month comes and you lost six pounds, you might think, oh, like I didn't make my goal. I'm just going to give up. But you still made progress. Um, and so you should still keep going and celebrate that. And I think that you can use these resolutions or aspirations or goals for yourself. Um, but don't beat yourself up if you don't necessarily hit that exact target. The idea is just to get yourself moving in that direction and then keep that momentum going. Um, it's kind of like with receiving notes, I think. Sometimes you have to take that mindset of, if you get critical feedback on your work, it, it can put you in a space of just feeling like, oh, I should give up. Like my writing's not good. Um, why am I writing this project or why am I writing at all? But it's a lot more helpful if you can take the attitude of, okay, it's not perfect, but there, there are good things here and there are things that I can work on and I'm going to keep pushing and improving it. And I think that's a good way to approach your, your writing resolutions, goals, whatever you want to call them too, that maybe you don't hit every deadline or every mark that you set for yourself exactly every time. But you're making progress. You know, it's like they say, progress, not perfection. And I think that's a really good um, way of thinking about your writing life. All right. Well, I'll do like we did in moot court where you got to play the other side of the good, argument. Good. <laughs> now. Uh, since we are soliciting uh, solicitations and aspirations, I'm going to have to say that I agree in part and disagree in part. That's a good lawyer approach, right? And I yeah. think uh, where I'm coming from from this is that I think it's a matter of scope. And Paul kind of identifies that, I think, in his two-minute tip as well. Uh, because he's saying, look, people sometimes make these grandiose resolutions. And I would agree, don't try to do that. Uh, don't say you're going to write the great American novel, you know, within six months. That ain't going to happen. Uh, but I do think there's something, some value uh, to putting some pressure on yourself and holding yourself accountable, you know, to, to seeing whether you can maybe put some discipline into your life to do something that's important to you. And so um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to come up with them on the spur of the moment on December 31st, you know, just for the fun of it, you know, but if you want to think about some things now, between now and December, maybe between now and December 15th, we're going to record that episode and you want to call in and give us your, your views on it. But the kind of things that maybe in next year in 2023, you want to kind of aspire to, I mean, I, I don't think it's a, it, it's an unrealistic goal to say um, that you're going to complete uh you know, a novel of a certain length next year, you know, if it, now how you do that and when you do it and when you set up your writing schedule, that's a different thing. And maybe that's what Paul's saying too, because he said by a certain date. 
I don't think he's, you know, it, the problem is, okay, what's the resolution going to look like? You shouldn't say, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to spend X m- amount of more time in my life on my writing. And without really analyzing what is making up your life now, and your life might be full of what grace podcasting or working on these other projects or dealing with family members or whatever. And that's not like Paul said, really thinking through the logistics of how you're going to get it done. But what I say is think through the logistics, give it, give us some thought, come up with a resolution or aspiration for the next year, or don't wait until the next year, do it now, but kind of apply it in the coming year. So I just play a little, little of the other side there. Any thoughts on any of that? I want to jump in because right now this is national and I never get the words right. Maybe somebody else can help me out. This is November is the national write a whole national novel writing month. Say it again, Sarah. National Novel Writing Month or NaNoWriMo, I think it is. NaNo, yes. And so I think part of that is to set yourself up with the gift of, okay, I'm going to be in community with all of these other writers who are also going to be working really hard. So I think that we can set those things up of, I'm giving myself the gift of this time to write and then that structure. And I go back to the... Uh, expression that we were talking about just a minute ago in terms of going to the gym. Lots of times, like I try to do two miles several times a day. Uh, I'm, that Wouldn't that be nice? Two miles several <laughs> times a week. And sometimes I'll say, oh, I don't have that 40 minutes to get that in. And then I just don't do it as opposed to say, but I do have 20 minutes to get a mile in. So I think those two things, give yourself the gift and realize that if you're going to get this done, you may not get it all done right at once, but give yourself that time to say, okay, I don't have the time right now to write a whole chapter, but if I sit down, I'll at least get something on the page. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And also um, kind of going back to something that you mentioned in our interview, Grace, about how I think you said when you you write, you don't like to start cold. You like to kind of give yourself something to work with in the beginning. And that kind of relates to what, what Leonis was talking about and what Paul talked about with um, figuring out how you're going to actually accomplish these goals. You know, it's it's November now, um, so it might be easy to think, okay, I'm going to wait till the end of December and think about my New Year's resolutions then. But if you actually start thinking now and get it in the back of your head about, okay, what do I want to accomplish and what can I actually do to make those things happen? Um, then once the New Year starts, you're not just scrambling at the last minute to figure out, okay, this is what I'm going to do to to actually make these things happen for you. Um, so giving yourself that, that lead time and plan ahead then makes the goals a lot more um, easy to accomplish, I think. Yeah, and the important thing is, I think, is just to think through some of these things. Uh, f- try to figure out, you know, if, if this is important to you, if writing and reading uh, you think is needs to be an important part of your life, think about how you're going to do more of that. Well, there's there's different ways to read. And, uh, we, you know, Sarah and I have been reading on uh, e-book, uh, audio book, uh, print book, uh, paperback book, and I'm sure, Grace, you probably do some of the same thing. Uh, and so think about, if reading is important to you, think about the different ways that you can consume uh, stories. And if writing is important to you, think about, uh, you know, how you want to uh, really improve your writing life. Is that going to be a course you're going to sign up for? Well, that's something you can, you know, say you're going to do and sign up and do. And, you know, there's no pressure there other than to show up and do the course, and then maybe that leads to something. So you know, there, there are things you can do. Just don't have the almighty, I'm going to, uh, you know, 
like this huge tome. And uh, <laughs> if you don't really have it in you to do it. But, uh, yeah, so, all right, we've, we've debated that. I think it's good. We're going to keep soliciting your thoughts on it because, um, you know, there might be some aspirations or some resolutions that people want to make that we'd love to hear about that we can talk more about on the podcast. And we're going to go from this uh, uh, this craft talk right into another one. We're going to have Tom Stewart, uh, uh, who's one of our community bloggers. Uh, his title is Three Writing Rule Observations About Why Writing Rules Cannot Be Trusted. Sarah, you want to tell us about Tom? Yeah, I like that title. I'm eager to hear what he has to say. Um, so Tom is the author of Immortal North and Under Big Hearted Skies. Um, he grew up in Canada near Winnipeg, attended the University of Manitoba, where he studied literature and philosophy, but then he dropped out. <laughs> he worked across the North as a fishing and hunting guide, an oil rig, roughneck, a bush pilot, and he backpacked internationally in the off seasons, um, all of which gave him life experience to write his books set in the great outdoors. And now he lives in uh, Tofino in Vancouver Island. Yeah, and his books have been well-reviewed, and uh, so it, it, it was really intriguing to me when I saw the title of his post and then uh, had a good time reading it, and uh, so let's listen to it, and it'll give us plenty to talk about, I'm sure. Tom Stewart, author of Immortal North and Under Big-Hearted Skies. Three writing rule observations about why writing rules cannot be trusted. Writing rule observation one. There are too many rules attempting to govern the craft of writing, but most of the rules are arbitrary, specious, and don't stand up to critical examination. Rules of writing are not to be trusted. So trust me as much as the Cretan who said all Cretans are liars. A few dubious rules. Show, don't tell. McCarthy's The Road won the Pulitzer. The boy was terrified. The boy was so cold. McCarthy could have described the boy's shaking hands or blue lips. Sometimes he does. Many times he and other great writers do not. Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea won the Nobel Prize. Opening line, he was an old man who fished alone. Hemingway didn't start the story. The fisherman's hands were leathery and cracked from years of working the lines. He looked to the stern of the boat, but nobody was there. Fact is, sometimes the directness and simplicity of telling, not showing, works fine. It's misleading to tell new writers it does not. Kill your darlings. Never. Don't do that. If something is truly out of place, it never was a darling to begin with. Let beauty and honesty trump everything else. In fact, a whole story could be subservient to one beautiful scene, even one spectacular sentence. Flaubert's Madame Bovary was mostly lost on me, but I perked up when he wrote, Human speech is like a cracked tin kettle on which we hammer out tunes to make bears dance when we long to move the stars. The rest of that book could be varieties of tomato soup recipes and I'd buy a copy. Does the hero come away changed by the end of the novel? That does not matter. Better question, does the reader? The Bechdel test asks whether a work features at least two women who talk to each other about something other than a man. So a story about a shipwrecked woman will necessarily be an inferior piece of writing? Cancel Winnie the Pooh? 
A boy and girl flee from their abusive father and set out to survive in the woods, but that story can't be written. Writing rule observation two. If someone tells literature what it can and cannot say, stop listening to them. Give blood meridian to any editor and the quantity of red ink it will come back with may equal the blood of that story. Yet it's one of my favorite novels and I wouldn't change a thing about it. There is so much subjectivity to art. People will try to objectify that subjectivity in hardened rules. Don't trust them. Someone may say a specific writer can break a certain rule because she is rolling or he is king. No, that writer did it and it worked. So if you want, you can too. And you can do things others are not doing. To not be limited by the literary theories of others. To write in my own way and potentially to fail. Hemingway. But let your conviction in your writing be proportionate to how much hard work you've given the craft. Know deeply a few books you believe to be great. Sweat over your manuscript daily for months. I let my work be guided by the same metric I evaluate all other art. Did it move me? Did I come away harder, softer, stronger, faster, kinder, less stupid, more compassionate, fuller? Story elements like plot, whether or not there is a climax and when it comes, if the hero has a sacred lie, and all the other trumpeted techniques of reductionistic and formulaic storycraft take a back seat to the only criteria that really matters. Well, the reader turn the page, then the next. Writing rule observation three, the one that guides my efforts, move a reader. Here's how I try to do that, by moving myself. Leave the page smoking, write the fibers out of the page, Lay something bare, sit there and bleed, build tension, bait, then switch, fall, tears, pierce minds, make love. Soak the page with bleeding words, crinkle it up with laughing ones, rip out the reader's heart by ripping out your own. Close the door, no phone, no internet, commit to time blocks of deep work to train creativity to show up, write like a bricklayer care too much about your writing. Some people say, don't take yourself too seriously. Forget that. Take your work very seriously. Mostly just make something beautiful. Just get to work. All right, I love the passion uh, that, that Tom Stewart brings to this post. I want to let our listeners know that uh, this is up on our website. It's in the uh, community uh, blog section under the Community Voices tab on the website, along with all the other uh, blog posts we received. And uh, so when you hear us talk about this and you want to go back and pull out something, maybe uh, something that's been written that uh, you think is meaningful to you, you can do that. Just go to the website and you can find it. Uh, you know, so many places to start here, um, co-host. Uh, I'll start with Grace. Uh, what, uh, what struck you about this, Grace? Oh, I loved every part of it. I am not someone who takes a lot of craft classes. I am not a formulaic writer. I broke the one of the primary rules, which is don't write in the first person. So in my novel, The Eves, you are very much in Jessica's head the whole time. And I guess the rule for that is don't do it because it makes people uncomfortable. 
but I, you know, it either works or it doesn't, right? So I loved uh, Tom's premise there. And there is, for example, with women's fiction, which is a whole nother debate now about is there anything that is women's fiction, we, which we could go down that whole dialogue. But there is this debate about does the character change at the end? I love the thing that he said that I loved the most was does the reader change? And I mm -hmm. think that does call us to change. Each of us are writers. I love those moments where you're sitting at the keyboard and you are weeping or you are laughing. Or you, I remember I, I referenced earlier the character of Jesper. My hands literally came off the keyboard when I went, oh my gosh, this is how it fits. And, and so we have to change, but the magic for us is when that book leaves us and changes the reader. So I, I thought what he said was just brilliant and so passionate too, right? Sarah. Yeah, yeah, I, I loved this too. And that also is a line that jumped out at me, the idea of don't ask if the character changes, ask if the reader changes. And I think that, you know, most of the time, in order for a story to be compelling and to keep a reader turning those pages, the main character probably will need to undergo some sort of change because if things are just in stasis, usually that's not very interesting to read. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. And I think that's that's a great point with all of this is just that part of the, the beauty and the wonder of writing and also what makes it so tricky is that it is so subjective and there really are no hard and fast rules. I think the closest thing to any hard and fast rule, which Tom is kind of getting at, is you have to keep your reader interested. You have to provoke some sort of a reaction, give them something that will engage them and compel them. But there are infinite different ways that you can do that. And we have all these sorts of rules about um, ways that typically work, but none of them are going to apply 100% of the time, like show, don't tell, you know, the reason that usually works is because it does engage the reader more. It makes the scene more real. It puts them more kind of in the moment with the character. Um, it allows them to understand the story at a kind of more subconscious level as opposed to just being told what's happening very literally. But it, it doesn't always work that well. And sometimes there are cases where the writer is just telling more directly and that can still be really engaging, really affecting and also just more efficient sometimes. Um, so I think that's something where, you know, that this is part of why we can have these wonderful debates about craft on every episode is because really there's no um, hard and fast rules in writing. Everything is a little bit up for debate and it's so personal. And that's that's what makes really great writing so great a lot of times is the style of the writer, the voice. And that's something that is very individual. It can't be taught. Um, you have to just kind of have it and know what your own is and kind of cultivate that over time. Um, but your voice is not going to be like anyone else's. So the rules that work for other people may not work for you or the rules that worked for you in one project not, might not work in the next project that you're working on or the next scene that you're working on. So... I think writing rules are helpful. Um, they can be very good guidelines, but they're not going to work 100% of the time. And it's okay to have a little bit of flexibility there. Yeah, and, and I love the piece as well. And I think, uh, you know, Tom wouldn't have been able to write this piece if he didn't know a number of writing rules. And so I'm sure he probably learned <laughs> some writing rules. And he's probably written, uh, you know, breaking the rules and following some rules. I think the key here is balance, right? I think what he was resisting, and I do too, is that it has to always be the same way with every single word, you know, in the piece that you write. No, you need a little variety, right? You need, as he said, um, you know, the very simple and direct sometimes, uh, the old man in the sea, as opposed to the leathery cracked, uh, you know, 
knuckles and that kind of thing. So, you know, I think that's important, but also love, um, and I'll echo this about, you know, changing the reader because really when the reader can find themselves and empathize with the characters on the page, um, you know, they see some things happening, they get emotionally attached and the reader becomes changed by the narrative as well. And the thing I really, really liked was uh, close the door. Uh, when people say, I don't take myself too seriously, he says, no, take yourself seriously. <laughs> he says, sweat over your own work, you know. Um, and when you do that, you know, when you do that, you're going to become really, um, I think, passionate about what you're writing. And when you become passionate about what you're writing, that passion is going to come off the page. It's going to come off when you're talking about your book. And then people naturally might get energized because you're energized. I mean, I was energized listening to Tom talk, talk, right? So he's very passionate about this. I'm sure in his books he's passionate about what he's writing. So, so get passionate about it. If you want to defend all the rules, write us a podcast, a blog post, you know, and we'll we'll put it up and come back and debate that next. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is a great, great topic. Um, something to uh, to take with us, and you know, just learn the rules and have fun breaking the rules and following the rules and doing whatever, but work hard as Tom said, because, uh, because that's important. Well, I'm so curious, gonna, Landis though, do you follow the rules? Do you have rules that you follow and you too, Sarah? Well, it, uh, so I follow some rules, but then I also break the same rules. So, you know, I'm, I'm, when I go back, for example, when I'm revising uh, an earlier draft, which might have more plot, and linear thinking. Um, I was talking to Sarah about this. Maybe we go back in later and we drop in some of the sensory details, you know, maybe show more about where these people are and what, you know, what it smells like and what it tastes like and those kinds of things. Sometimes when I first go through it, I'm not doing that as much, right? Because I'm just trying to get the story out on the page. So I, I kind of try to follow the rule to involve all the senses, you know, to the extent I can. I'm better at some senses than I am at others. Um, but sometimes, I mean, I, George Arnold made a good point. He says, you ought to know the rules of grammar so that you know how to break them in dialogue, mm -hmm. you know, because that's how you get some authentic characters, you know, by having, you know, people that don't speak <laughs> grammatically correctly. So, yeah, I follow the rules, uh, also break the rules, and I love learning new rules. What about you, Sarah? Yeah, I, I think that's really true. Um, and, and what you said about knowing the rules first and then being able to break them, I think is so important. Um, and for me, I think it's, I try to generally follow most of the, you know, conventionally accepted rules of writing, but it's not something that I necessarily think about that consciously. And I also do break them sometimes. Um, like for example, with adverbs, uh, mm. typically adverbs are kind of um, looked down upon <laughs> in contemporary mm. writing. Yeah. Don't use yeah. them as, as the general rule of thumb. And I generally avoid them, but sometimes I use them. But I think that I try to use them in a conscious way. If I use adverbs, I know that I'm using an adverb and I'm thinking about why is this here. Um, and this is part of why writing groups and getting feedback from beta readers and, and people like that can be really helpful is because I know if I write something with an adverb in it and I give it to one of my critique groups, someone is going to point out that adverb. Yeah, <laughs> There's going to be yeah. someone who says like, find a stronger way to write this. Um, yeah. So I know that I have people who are sort of pointing that out to me and, and holding me accountable for that. But there are times when I get those notes and I'm like, no, I, I like the adverb here. I put it here for a reason. I think it mm -hmm. works. So 
I think that you start with that foundation of rules, um, which you can accomplish by just reading as much as possible and writing as much as possible and talking to other writers, having discussions like this where you kind of talk about what the, the general rules of thumb are, but have the confidence in your own work and your own style and voice and creative decisions to know that you can break the rules sometimes, but you probably just want to be doing it in a conscious way where you're aware that there are certain rules that maybe you're you're breaking or bending and what is the purpose behind that? Is there mm. something that you're accomplishing by having that adverb? Or are you just being a little bit lazy and you should use a stronger verb? <laughs> well, you know, your, your critique crew partner probably is reading Stephen King's own writing because he describes mm-hmm. adverbs as like weeds that take over the front yard. You should kill them all. <laughs> but then when you try to kill them, they keep coming back. You know, oh, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's why you have spell, uh, you know, the, the search and the spell check stuff. You, you put in L-Y and you search for it and as you've got... If you've got 150 ly words in the first, you know, 50 pages, you probably need to go in and do a little tweaking, right, Sarah? Exactly. Yeah. Good. So, Grace, what was, your thought, what was your thought about this? Yeah, I mean, you, you you threw it back to us. We'll throw it back to you. Is there a uh, are there some rules you like to break? Well, the first person rule. I, I really yeah. I like writing that because for me I'm also more in the character's head, so yeah. I, I like that. Although my next novel is not; it's the the main character is a ghostwriter, so mm. she's inside the other character's head. So that's something that um, I like to play with. I, I'm fascinated by people like you said, Landis, how you do the the big part of the work and then you go back and layer. I have lots of friends who do that. Where I am. In the room, I feel it, I smell it, I describe it as I write it. Uh, so I'm fascinated. I think it's a much more efficient way to write, as you describe it, and as my friend does. She just sits down, she writes out most of the story, and then she goes back and says, okay, there are no sights, there are no smells, there are no textures here. I haven't talked about the light coming in through the window. Uh, she describes it more as writing like a screenwriter, you know, let's get all the dialogue down. Let's get the big plot pieces, and then like let's talk about how the couch is red. So yeah, well, Sarah, um, Sarah's a screenwriter, so she might can speak to that. So. Yeah, well, it's funny. This is one of those things that you know, just like we've been talking about, it's so individual, and there's no run right or wrong wrong way to do it. I think I kind of do something sort of between those approaches. Like I tend mm-hmm. to do a lot of pre-writing. So I'll come up with a lot of notes first. I'll do my research. I typically have a pretty fully featured outline before I start a first draft. Um, so that almost acts as that like bare bones, here's the story, mm-hmm. here's what's going to mm-hmm. essentially happen version of the story. But then once I write a draft, I am doing the more kind of rich writing where I will put in descriptions and that sort of thing. Um, And then as I go back through and do revisions, I might add to those, I might cut some of them because maybe I I wrote more than I needed to. Um, But I do like to layer in the details on a first draft, but that's because I already have the bones of the story down before I get there. All right. Well, we're going to, we could sit here and talk all day about this This is a great topic, uh, but we're going to uh, have a little. Uh, we're going to go to Act Four now. We're going to talk about reading and writing communities and the things that uh, Grace has done that might spark some ideas for you as an author uh, or, or you as a reader who wants to see some of the things she's doing as well. So, uh, right after this, we have a newsletter called Beyond Three Hundred, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you, because that takes way too much time. 
All right, here we are in our final act today. Uh, we are talking about reading and writing communities, and uh, you know, I'm interested in everything that Grace has been doing because if you go to her website and you just think, oh, how does she have time to do all these different things that she's doing because uh, she's uh, writing, she's interviewing, she's got several talk shows. And, and you know, uh, Grace, uh, we're going to be talking about creative collaborations uh and uh, one of the questions is sort of why do it? You know, if you're a creative, if you're an author or something, why why get into all these different collaborations? You've created a number of collaborative arrangements over time. Let's talk about a little bit uh, what you've created and why you've created them and some value you see in it. I think basically we are just all better if we are in community. That's reflected in my writing. It's reflected in almost everything I did when I had my educational consulting company. It was called GMS Partners because I felt that we were in partnership with the schools. We weren't the people who came out and told you what to do in your schools. We are partnership. So I really believe that we are better together. Also for me, there was a huge learning curve, as I mentioned earlier in the show. I didn't know so many of the craft pieces. I remember on one of my very first interviews after the eaves came out and someone asked me if I was a pantser or a plotter and I had no idea (laughs) what they meant. Now that seems silly to me, but I think that for me, or I know that for me, being in community makes me better. And it also allows me, and this is super important to me, to lift up other people. So I created several collaboratives, um, partially to help myself and partially to help other authors. One of them is called Author Talk Network. We're a group of 19 authors that came together to share our experience of writing. You can go to the Author Talk Network website, which is authortalknetwork.com. And you can see we have a whole series of panels that you can invite us to. And most of us do this because we just want to do it. There's no fee involved necessarily at all. So we go to book clubs or writing groups or to school groups, and we can put together a panel on ghost writing, mystery writing, research. There are 19 different topics. And then we all cross-promote each other. So earlier I had said how social media was something that was anathema to almost anything I did in my life. So one of the first things I did was I joined a Facebook group called Bookish Road Trip. It is now where I spend almost all of my social media time. I'm the director of marketing there. And we have a book club and we have newsletters and we have uh, lots of different author events. It's very reader focused. So for me, there is that idea of working in community. I've got Author Talk Network. I'm part of Bookish Road Trip. But the real fun for me right now is realizing what I didn't know. So when Storytellers, which is my one radio show, really is going so well, and I thought, what about people who are launching books? So we created this new format called Launchpad, and it's four authors on at a time. They all agree to cross-promote. It's the most fun when they bring on friends of their own from another community, like Women's Fiction Writers Association or Women's National Book Association, or if they're all from She Writes Press or whatever their press might be. Because then, again, we build that collaboration. And networking, community, collaboration, and then sharing what we have is absolutely, I think, the cornerstone of what most authors want to be about. 
Well, you've given us a lot to sort of break down there, and uh, Sarah, you can jump in anytime too. But let's start with uh, Author Talk Network. I'm curious because others who are out there might be wondering, well, how, how could I put something in like that? Did you try to find authors that were writing all in the same genre, say women's fiction, um, and how did you go about doing that, uh, getting people together, and who sets the rules, and who builds the website? And you know, just talk through some of the logistics of that because I think some people might be curious about how they might form their own, you know, networks. I encourage people to do their own networks all the time. And if you are on Facebook, you can find many of them. There's Shine Like Paper Lanterns, which is historical fiction. There's Tall Poppies. There's Bookish Road Trip. There's so many groups. You can find people in your own genre, Blackbird Writers, if you're a mystery writer. And I would say cast a wide net in the beginning and find out what's out there. I used to be members of lots of groups, and now I've narrowed it down because many times I spend too much time on social media. So I uh, would say find the authors that you know, respond to people. It's I find it's fairly easy to make friends on social media. So I would respond to posts, find the people that you resonate with, send them a direct message. And the way that Author Talk Network came about is it came about actually before the radio show did. So I was thinking, how do I continue my author brand? How do I continue to get my story out? And how do I get to be more than my story? that was really critical, you know, thinking about an author brand, which I don't think I've totally resolved yet. But who can I collaborate with? So being in the same genre was not at all important. It was actually, we are better as we are more diverse. So we just created this group. We're really excited. We have an ebook that's out. It's free. You can find it on my website. You can find it on Author Talk Network. It's a great, it's a free ebook, and it's called Sharp Tips for Effective Writing. We all came together. We came up with a bunch of topics, and we have, oh, I think it's 200 quotes on writing from different authors, and then you can engage with the authors in the network through that. So who, who uh, somebody's got to be in charge of this thing, right? I mean, you, do you share that responsibility? or Because it's not just as simple as uh, saying we're going to be together and kumbaya and all that, right? <laughs> I guess I'm technically <laughs> responsible for it, and I get the ball rolling on a, f- a lot of our projects. So I'll, I'll say, mm-hmm. like, let's come up with an ebook. And then I'll send something out and everybody jumps in. The panel series is being taken over by Red Penguin Books, so we're really excited about that. Um, the website, one of the members paid for it. Uh, I have a family member who builds my website who just built the same website uh, to carry it over. So, it, again, it's that networking uh, possibilities. Yeah. Now, that sounds like um, a valuable thing for authors to consider doing because, um, I'm going, as I said, I'm going through all these audio episodes that I recorded. And one, one comment I remember somebody made was, okay, uh, you've published a book. Congratulations! You're now a small business owner. You know? <laughs> yes. So, so, and and being that, you know, there are lots of things that you need to think about. You've got to have different departments. You know, one is your production department, one's your creative department, uh, and one is your social media department, and one is your website department. And so, you know, that's part of. And then you got the marketing department, and that marketing department said, "Hey." You author, you should go get involved in some things. Like, why don't you get with some other writers? Because it's true that if you collaborate with others, and I know, Sarah, you've, uh, you collaborate with a lot of different critique groups, right? Mm-hmm. And so y'all are constantly helping each other, maybe not as formalized as what 
they've done here, but you do have this network, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think that's so important to build that network and to find other writers who can help you and who you can also help in turn. And that's something that I know you've been talking about, Grace, which I think is wonderful, is not just thinking about how do you promote yourself, but how do you lift up other writers? Uh, And I'm curious, do you have any advice for, say, someone who's listening to this who's like a baby writer? Maybe they've never published before. Maybe they don't have much of a platform. They don't have, you know, a podcast or a radio show or anything of of the sort of stuff that you've built up around your career, um, what are things that anyone can do to help promote other writers to maybe also at the same time help build their own career and their own network? Well, the first thing I would say is just go to my website, which is gracesalmon.net. And it's not, it's said like the fish, but it's not spelled like it's S-A-M-M-O-N, gracesalmon.net. And in there under media, there is a two-part blog post that I wrote. And it talks about changing your author life one day at a time, one experience at a time. So we'll talk about networking there. We'll talk about how to get on a podcast. We'll talk about how to be a good podcast guest. But again, Sarah, I think it's just about making friends. If you see a post that you like, comment on it. And if you find an author that you really like, comment several times. We notice that. You know, we notice those things. Find out about the craft of writing. Listen to podcasts. It's building the platform, if you will, to me, is totally surprising. I referenced earlier that I thought I was going to write the book, it was going to become a bestseller, and I'd be done. Well, that's not the way it works, but the other things that it opens to you, I would have never imagined that when I joined Bookish Road Trip and they asked me to be the membership director, they asked me because I was commenting all of the time. They noticed I was there. And then there's the challenge. I'm an entrepreneur. I've created nonprofits and for-profits. So... I liked that challenge of how do we grow an organization with 1,000 members to one that now has over 4,000 members a year later. Uh, The community is so supportive. And then there are some books that we're coming out with, growing out from my Launchpad radio show, which celebrates book debuts. I wanted to do the same thing. I said to myself, You know, here we have this radio show called Launchpad. We are on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We've got these four authors on at a time. And I began to think how little I knew. So I said, why don't we create a three-book series called Launchpad, the Countdown to Writing Your Book, Launchpad, the Countdown to Publishing Your Book, and Launchpad, the Countdown to Marketing Your Book. And hopefully all three of those will be out in the spring. And they're specifically designed for exactly that person, Sarah, that you're talking about. The deer, you know, and I say deer in the headlights, not, I hope, in an offensive way, but it was, I had no knowledge. You know, I didn't know what a TBR was. I had none of that stuff. Uh, So hopefully these books will help. And then people can always just email me, and I, I answer emails from absolutely anybody. Yeah, that's great. That's great of you to do that. We've got a similar mindset here. We want to support writers, and we've been trying to come up with different ways to do that. I think you heard Sarah mention earlier the uh, 30-second elevator pitch. We're encouraging mm-hmm. writers anywhere and everywhere. You know, when you get your book to come out, and maybe you can share this, Grace, that, look, they just they just go to our website. They click on that link. They record their elevator pitch. Of course, they practice it first, probably get it down, but, uh, you know, and then they get on without too much hassle in terms of uh, having to go through a, a vetting process, and we help support those writers, and uh, 
And we do it by having authors on the show as well and by interviewing them and bringing people on. But uh, one thing you mentioned I want to follow up on social media-wise, because a lot of people, uh, myself included, you know, treat social media a little bit like a necessary evil um, in the sense that you've got to be there and you've got to have it. But one of the things you mentioned, which I think I, I want to explore more, are these Facebook groups, you know, finding a group that uh, of like-minded people that are engaged in a similar enterprise, uh, whether for us it would be podcasting or writing mysteries or whatever it may be. Um, I think there's probably some value in doing some research there and finding those kind of groups. It sounds like it's worked for you. Absolutely, and I definitely want to post about your 30-second elevator speech because that's so critical. So, I, you know, let's... After we're done, let's talk about how sure. I can post about that. But there's the the groups that you talk about are critical. I have made, and this is probably the only good thing that came out of COVID. The only thing for me that came out of COVID was I have real friends. I used to poo-poo people that thought they had real friends on Facebook. And I have to tell you, we pick up the phone, we talk, we meet now when we can meet. They have become very much real personal friends, but they've also become great writing partners. I've got some exciting things going on in the storytellers. And quite honestly, you know, I, I forget who said it, but it says, you know, do something scary every day. And I've got some exciting things going on, but I'm kind of scared. So I called up one of my previously virtual friends and said, can I do this? What do you think? So that's really important, those Facebook groups. But also finding groups like the Women's Fiction Writers Association, Women's National Book Association, where you can go and take classes for free. Memberships tend to be under $50. You can take a class. You can listen to a webinar. They'll, those are just such rich places to learn our craft. There are lots of resources. I think, Sarah, you're a member of the WNBA, right? I yeah. am, yeah. So we'll have to make sure to, to let them know when this interview is coming out. Maybe they can put it on their website. Um, yeah. they're, they're such a great group. And I think that's a wonderful point you made about how um, you can enrich not only your writing and your career with this, but your social life, too. I mean, most of my friends probably are fellow writers or people I've met in some way or another through the writing community or the entertainment industry. Um, and so I think there's a lot of value in that. And sometimes people overlook that, but it can be a wonderful kind of side effect of engaging in communities that way. Um, I do have one thing I'm curious about with all of this sort of um, ancillary work you do, if you want to call it that, around your writing it's it's wonderful and it's enriching, but it's also very time consuming, I'm sure. So how do you balance that with the actual writing? You know, what Tom Stewart was talking about in his post about just sitting down and doing the work. Um, do you have any any tips for how you kind of make those two parts work together? Um, this is the part where you tell yourself it's OK to fail. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, like I said, I am real. I'm, I'm cranking out a lot of articles and I enjoy that. There is also, though, the question of, am I going to make time for the novel? I have a very good friend, uh, Sarah Lynn Richards, who's a mystery writer, and she'll say to me, am I writing? And I say, I'm thinking about it. She goes, oh, then you're writing. But that's not really the same thing. Uh, so having accountability partners, I think, is something I'm going to explore uh, as soon as we get these three launchpad books out. I'm not going to say in the new year, because that would be horrible based on the previous discussion <laughs> we had. But... Uh, I, I think uh, I'm thinking about accountability partners. I'm thinking of joining a critique group because I do have another story. I wasn't sure if I had another story. 
I think another mm-hmm. thing that we haven't really talked about is the amount of work it takes. I sometimes refer to being an author as the most expensive volunteer job I've ever done. You know, if we're mm-hmm. serious about making this our life's work, I think there's a real difference between authors who have to have a marketing plan and a strict budget and know where they're going and authors who may be uh, still have a full-time job and are doing this because it's a passion or are retired and because this is a passion. Yeah, getting back to that small business that you own when you uh, put out that book, I like to jokingly refer to mine as a nonprofit enterprise. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Just like podcasting, right? (laughs) Just like like podcasting, yeah. But but a couple things I heard, um, you know, the the fact that when you're with these different groups, you can come up with this collective content um, and and repurpose it and put an ebook out there and make it free to people that might then subscribe to your group or ask people to come speak. It's a it's another way for the authors that you're connecting with to get some content out there. And, and don't be afraid if you're listening to this authors of creating uh, some free content. Um, free free sells better than just about anything. You know, from what I hear, you know. and and once people you know buy quote some of that free stuff, uh, and they see a little bit about you, they might try some of the stuff that uh, you know that, that costs something. So, it's a nice marketing tool, but it's also nice to do it in collaboration uh, with with other people. So uh, keep that in mind as well. Um, well, look, we're um, we're about to come to an end to this uh, discussion here, and uh, we're gonna come right back with our. Uh, I guess our collective thoughts uh, on this enterprise and that we've been doing today. And uh, Sarah will tell us what's coming next uh, right after this. Charlotte Readers Podcast is on social media and we'd love to have you follow and engage with us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Charlotte Readers Podcast. Check us out. All right, Grace, the part of the show where if I cut you off and you had something left to say, we're going to do our takeaways now. And I usually let Sarah go first. Uh, so I'm going to be thinking about something while she's talking. So, uh, you know, uh, Sarah will go first, give a little takeaway, then I'll have, uh, kick it over to you, Grace. Uh, but uh, thoughts, Sarah? Um, well, I feel like I learned so much this time. I, I've definitely enjoyed talking with you, Grace, and hearing about your writing and everything that you do to kind of build a writing community and support other writers. I think that's beautiful. Um, we had a, a writer on here recently to do an interview. Her name is Becky Robinson. We were talking about her book, Reach, and she talked a lot about that principle of generosity and how that's such an important part of marketing. Um, and I think that everything you're doing really embodies that. So that just reinforced the importance of that to me. Um, I also really enjoyed our talk about uh, New Year's resolutions and kind of the pros and cons of how you think about those. And I think that's a good thing to keep in mind as we think about our own resolutions and aspirations. And as we kind of solicit those from our listeners is how are you going to actually back those up and what do they mean to you? Um, And I love Tom Story's blog post too. I think that there was so much inspiration there to kind of just own your writing and own your voice and your style and um, embrace just creating something that's beautiful and that's going to mean something to people and not worrying as much about the particulars of the rules. Um, so I left, I feel very inspired at the end of this, which I think is always yeah. a good way to all feel. Right. So Grace, what are some of your takeaways? I, first of all, loved spending time riding along with the two of you. Such a thoughtful, mm-hmm. well thought out podcast. And also to have the gift of time, you know, on mm-hmm. our other 
platforms were frequently limited to only having, you know, you've got to be done in 18 minutes, bumper to bumper. <laughs> so to have the gift of this time with you is truly that. And I, and I want to thank you for that. I love the book that um, Sarah recommended. I'm going to check that one out. I absolutely adored Tom Stewart. I'm going to give myself some gifts to try to get some of that other writing done. And Landish, you're very wise. I love the way you coordinated this. So thanks for having me today. Oh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, and I, I, I appreciate you, as I say, riding along with us. It was fun today. Uh, I, you know, my takeaways are that uh, it, I really enjoyed spending time uh, with you, Grace, because uh, you're doing a lot of things. Uh, you're being very creative and, and very deliberate about some of the things you're doing. And we talked to authors about, you know, building an author platform. And, and when an author first starts out, Sarah called him a baby author. We'll call him a you know, whatever, baby baby author, young author, <laughs> young in spirit author, whatever, author who hadn't been published yet. But the idea is you don't know until you publish your first book sometimes some of the things you should be doing to get ready to publish that first book. And you were thinking ahead. You're being proactive. You're collaborating with other writers. I mean, it's already given me some ideas about, you know, things that we can be doing here to involve more. You know, we've got a lot of folks that have been on the podcast, and we're trying to bring people back with the elevator pitches and with the blog posts and all that kind of thing. So it is all about building community. And I really appreciate the fact that we had time, as you said, a lot of time to spend on creating community. And I might search out some of those Facebook pages and think about what works. Uh, I'm a member of Sisters in Crime. They let a few guys in. Uh, they're not, uh, you know, it did start out for women only, but they let they let the men in too. That's a nice organization. But uh, no, it's been a pleasure. And as like y'all, I enjoyed Tom's uh you know, uh, parody of the writing rules. That was that was fun, and uh, we're gonna enjoy uh, probably talking about writing rules for for some time to come uh, on this podcast. Uh, so, with that, Sarah, can you tell us what's coming next? Yeah, so we've got a really exciting episode next time. Uh, we've got New York Times bestselling author David Baldacci returning to the podcast. He's going to discuss his new memory man thriller, Long Shadows, uh, plus two other novels that released this year, Dreamtown and The 620 Man. We've also got another thriller called Outside the Wire, which is set in Bag- Baghdad by local author Gary Edgington. Um, he's a former counterterrorism agent, so I think he was writing some of this from experience, so there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about there. And of course, we're going to have more book recommendations and year-end community events as we get towards the holidays and more. Yeah, probably a few writing rule discussions. Oh, yeah, I'm sure we will. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, uh, Grace, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Sarah, good to see you again. Yeah, thanks to both of you. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, so, uh, hey, listeners, uh, read on and write on. <laughs> <laughs>